thinking biblically about what we have in Christ. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to do the last message on thinking biblically. I promised you this message. I've been holding off because I don't really want to do it. It's a very, very difficult message, not theologically, not to interpret the passages of Scripture, but pastorally. It's going to be about divorce, remarriage, and singleness. And I've put it off as long as I can, and I'm going to have to, Lord willing, uh, teach that next week. So many lives are touched by the tragedy and heartbreak of uh, divorce. Uh, It needs to be delivered uh, in a sensitive fashion, the way Christ himself would minister to the souls and hearts of people that he spoke the word of God to. So I covet your prayers this week as I do final preparations on that message. And then, Lord willing, in two weeks, we're going to begin a new series of messages. We're going to begin doing a character study on the father of the faithful, Abraham. And we'll do that for a number of weeks, and depending on uh, feedback from you all, We may continue with Joseph after that. So look forward to that. Character studies are are very uh, practical. It shows us not primarily the biblical characters. That shouldn't be our main focus. It should be on how God interacted with those characters, both in their faithfulness, which Abraham was faithful, but also in his failures because he had quite a number of those as well. So that's what we have to look forward to, uh, Lord willing, in the coming weeks. Now, we want to look at what we have in Christ. And I think it's already been spoiled for you all. You may have noticed the slide. But what is the most common we have phrase in the Bible? Uh, We have seen occurs quite a bit. We have brought... Uh, we have hope, we have salvation. What do you think the most common phrase would be? Now, you're not going to be surprised because the slide was briefly shown, but the most common phrase, we have phrase in scriptures, we have sinned. It occurs 26 times in 26 verses. Actually, some of those are compound. We have sinned and we have acted wickedly. We have sinned and we have committed iniquity. So if we actually counted them, it would be higher than 26, because the same idea is found twice in a number of verses. But this is the most common we have phrased. Imagine that. We have sinned. But in the face of this, here's what we have in Christ. This is not everything. I'd probably need three or four slides like this if I included every we have relative to something we have in Christ. But this is just some of them. We can't even go over all these in one message. I've selected certain ones. But this is what we have in Christ. In the face of our we have sinned, this is what God and Christ have done. Imagine that. Imagine if I had sinned against you 
26 times last year. You'd pull out your little list. No Christmas card for Johnson next year. Right off that list. Cross them right out. In the face of our sin, this is what God and Christ have done. If this does not produce gratitude and appreciation in our hearts as believers in Christ, I don't know what will. What we're looking at here up on this screen is for many Christians a bad word. This is theology. Oh, theology, isn't that just for the halls of the seminary? No, it's not. Look, we have redemption, we have forgiveness, we have eternal life, we have the mind of Christ, we have a new commandment, on and on. The theology is practical. It's not just for the, for the ivory towers of the seminary. It's not just to fill your mind with an understanding of what Scripture teaches about God and Christ and the Holy Spirit and salvation and about man and his sinfulness. It's, it's not just about what God has done for us, but also how we should respond to it. Theology is preeminently practical. If you study theology and it doesn't affect your heart and only fills your mind, you're not studying it correctly. You can see from a lot of these theological terms that theology is practical. This is the doctrine of salvation, or part of it, what's studied in seminary as the, doctor of, the doctrine of salvation. But it's going to connect to other parts of theology, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's so much that this touches on. So we're going to look at some of what we have in Christ this morning. We're going to look at it under three headings. What you have, not just all of us collectively, but each one of you individually who has trusted in Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross when he bore the sins of the world in his body, shed his precious blood and died. If you have believed and placed your trust for salvation in that, turn from your sin, turn to Christ, crying out to be saved, then this is what you have, not just the church collectively, you individually. Everything we look at here is true of you individually, each and every one who has truly repented and truly placed their trust in Jesus Christ. We're going to look at it as what you, what you have that was accomplished in the past at the cross of Christ, what you currently have in the present, and what you have waiting for you in the future. So let's dig right in what you have that was accomplished in the past. You have redemption in Christ Jesus. Now, redemption, that's a big word. Maybe we don't quite understand what it means biblically. When you come to the New Testament and you read the words redeemed, redeem, redemption, there's really two separate ideas there. They're two sides of the same coin. 
It's based on what words in the original Greek language that the writers wrote in is being used. What group of words? One group of words has the idea of going to the market, or in particular the slave market, because they bought and sold slaves in the Roman Empire in the, the time that the New Testament was written, and purchasing, redeeming a slave out of the, the, the market for your own use. When, when that is used in the New Testament of the believer, God and Christ have purchased every believer Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross, has purchased every believer out of the slave market of sin for his own purposes, for his own use. He has a new purpose in your life. The other group of words have to do with the price that is paid. The price that is paid. And that is what's being used here in Ephesians 1.7. In him, in Christ... Not in anyone else, not apart from Christ, you have been redeemed. You could translate that ransomed. You have been ransomed. Christ paid the ransom price to purchase you and I. And the ransom price is through his blood. He shed his blood and died. He shed his life's blood for all who would believe in him. This was according to, this came from the riches of his grace. We could never purchase our own salvation. We have to come to grips with the fact that the gospel message that's found in the scriptures comes from God alone. He did it all. You know, reach into your, my pockets and pull them out. There's nothing but pocket lint there. Imagine for a moment that, that I was standing before a judge in a human court and the judge says, guilty, $30 or 30 days. And I pull out my pockets and the lint falls. I don't have $30. I don't have anything to pay. I'm going directly to jail. I'm not passing go. I'm not collecting $200. But one of you, out of the riches of your grace, stands up and says, Judge, I will pay Johnson's fine. I will pay the $30. And you count out the $30 and you pay my fine. I'm now free to go. Out of your riches, you paid my fine because I was a pauper. I had nothing. I had no means to pay that price. Our sin has produced an infinite debt. Only God could pay that infinite debt. Christ's blood is infinite in value. And he has redeemed us. He has paid the ransom price by means of his blood. This redemption is not just temporary, it's eternal. 
Here the writer to the Hebrews says, not with the blood of goats and calves. He's looking back to Leviticus chapter 16. On the day of atonement, when the high priest, with the blood of a young goat, would go and make atonement in the holy place. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. Jesus Christ entered the most holy place, the holy of holies, the place that the high priest of Israel would go only once a year and only with blood of atonement, a blood of covering. Christ, with his own blood, went into that very holy place, the holiest of holies. He's being pictured as making atonement which he did on the cross. And as a result, he has obtained eternal redemption for all of us. Not just temporary, but eternal for all of us who have believed and trusted in Jesus Christ. That's what we have in Christ that was accomplished in the past. We are blood-bought sinners. You've heard that phrase before. This is why he ransomed us by means of his blood. But what do we have in the present as living, breathing believers in Christ? Well, we have forgiveness in Christ. That very same verse, Ephesians 1, 7, goes on. In him we have redemption by means of his blood or through his blood. We have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We have forgiveness this word forgiveness has the idea of dismissal, sending away. On the Day of Atonement, there were two goats. One was slain. Its blood was brought into the holy place by the high priest. Atonement was made. And then the second goat was sent away into the wilderness, outside of the camp of Israel, never to be seen again. That is the idea of forgiveness. When God forgives us, our sins are removed. As far as the east is from the west, as the scripture says, so far as you removed our transgressions from us. The idea of forgiveness is the sending away. This, too, is according to the riches of his grace. We didn't earn it. He freely, graciously bestowed forgiveness upon us in Christ. You have peace with God. Paul writes in Romans 5, Therefore, we have been justified. Justified is declared righteous, declared innocent. We have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. As a result, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, through what he's accomplished on the cross. It's, that word justified is sometimes stated as just as if I had never sinned. That's how God views us in Christ. Christ's blood covers us. It has atoned for our sin and is like a covering, just like the blood on the doorframe of 
the Israelites home when they were slaves in Egypt and the Passover came and the blood of the Passover lamb was spread around the doorframe, the sides and over it, and the death angel would pass over because that household was covered in the blood. We are covered in Christ's blood, and it's just as if we had never sinned because of the covering of his blood. As a result, we have peace. When you read the word peace, uh, it has to do with the concept of reconciliation. The Bible uses that word as well in the New Testament. Reconciliation, reconcile. Reconcile, reconciliation is just making peace. Uh, you might see the headlines on, uh, on some website that some Hollywood celebrities are getting divorced. And then you read the next day or week or month, oh, they reconciled. They're now at peace with one another and they're not getting divorced. That's what reconciliation is, the making of peace between two parties that are on opposite sides. We were on opposite sides from God and Christ and Christ reconciled us to God through his death on the cross. We now have peace with God. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross in bearing the sins of the world, reconciling the world unto himself by his blood, then you don't have peace with God. The scripture is very clear. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he hasn't believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Uh, John 3.18. Uh, some verses later in John 3.36, the scripture says, whoever believes in him has everlasting life. Whoever does not believe shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Before you and I became believers in Christ, we were under God's wrath and judgment. Now, it was certain that we would believe, and we'll see that in a little bit from another verse of Scripture. But we were under God's wrath and judgment before we believed. That's the position we were in. We didn't have peace with God. His wrath was upon us if we did not believe. If you haven't believed, you're still under God's wrath and judgment. In, in love and patience, he is hold, withholding that judgment till a future time. The scripture says it's appointed unto a person to die once, and after this comes judgment. That judgment will happen at a future point in time. But you can have peace with God through Jesus Christ this morning if you repent of your sin and turn to God and cry out for him to be merciful to you. The scripture says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you're a believer in Christ, you have eternal life. Eternal life is not just something future. John writes this in the, the first letter. These things I've written to you who believe. Notice who he is writing to. Those who believe in the name of the Son of God, who believe in Jesus and all that he stood for. 
Why did he write to them? So that they may know that they might have? No. Uh, so that they will have in the future? No. So that some of you might possibly have? No. So that you may know that you have eternal life. Right now, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. See, eternal life certainly involves length of life. It's eternal. It goes on forever. There's no end to it, but it's more than simply length of life. It is also quality of life. See, the unsaved, they will live forever as well, but the quality of their life is going to be very, very different. The scriptures are clear that the unsaved are cast into the outer darkness apart from God and Christ. They are cast into the lake of fire, which is also called the outer darkness, and there'll be the weeping and gnashing of teeth. But as a believer in Christ, that's not your future. That's not going to be the quality of your life. Jesus Christ said in John 10.10, 10, I came that they might have life and that they might have it abundantly. See, it's not just length of life, an abundant length, but an abundant quality of life. Eternal life is something that you already have as a believer in Christ. You can live your life differently now on a higher level. The quality of your life is not dictated by your circumstances. The sun is shining, you're in a good mood. It's gray and overcast or raining, you're in a bad mood. There are all different circumstances in life that come upon us. But in Christ, you have the ability to rejoice even in hard circumstances of life. It's a different quality, and you have that quality of eternal life right now, today, if you've trusted already in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Today, you have a great high priest. In writing to the Hebrews, it builds a lot on the Old Testament, brings the Old Testament truths alive in Jesus Christ, who they all looked forward to. The teachings of Old Testament scripture looked forward to, many of them, to the coming of Jesus Christ and what he would do. In Hebrews 4, the writer says, we have a great high priest. Jesus, a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, who was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. As a result of that, he gives us this exhortation to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. We can draw near now. Not only the high priest once a year going into the Holy of Holies, but now as Matthew records, that veil of the temple was torn apart when Christ died on the cross. Access into the Holy of Holies past that veil is now open to everyone. He's showing Christ as the high priest, the great high priest, who has gone into the Holy of Holies, and now we can follow. 
we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Through prayer, we can enter into the very throne room of God because our high priest has gone there before us. He's already entered there. He's seated at the right hand of God in the very throne room of God as our great high priest, and we can follow him there in prayer. One day we'll follow when he takes us to be with himself. When the resurrection occurs and those who are dead in Christ rise and those who are alive will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord. We will be there in our bodies. Right now we can enter the very throne room of God by prayer because of this high priest. He understands what you and I go through because he himself was tempted in every area of life. Yet he was without sin. It was impossible for the Holy Christ to sin. It wasn't in him. Peter says he did no sin. Paul says he knew no sin. John writes, in him there was no sin. There was nothing in Christ that could ever possibly sin. But he was tempted, just like you and I are. And so he understands, and we can draw near through Christ to God. And we have a sympathetic ear as we confess our sin and we cry out for help to be victorious over it. You have an advocate. An advocate is a lawyer, a defense lawyer, who's going to advocate for you. John writes, my little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin, that you ought not sin, that you should not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate, a defense lawyer, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. This word advocate, he is a defense lawyer pleading our case. Picture a lawyer during closing arguments, appealing to the jury, making his case that you are innocent of what you've been charged with. Jesus Christ makes that case for us. <laughs> Perry Mason can't compete with Jesus Christ or whoever your favorite defense lawyer is, whether it be a Hollywood one or a real life. Jesus Christ is pleading your case and mine as believers in Christ whenever we sin. And what's his plea? It's his blood. Verse 2, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, that, that's, that's a big word. But all it means is he has satisfied the injury. He has paid the debt in full. He has taken out his wallet and he paid the $30 for that no good, low down scoundrel Johnson so he doesn't have to go to jail eternally. Christ paid that himself. He has fully satisfied God the Father. He has fully 
paid the debt. No judge will say, okay, the debt's been paid, but I'm still sending you to, to jail. They can't do that. They won't do that. Christ has fully satisfied all the injury and debt that we owe to God. An eternal injury he satisfied with his infinite blood, his infinite life. And he pleads our case. That word advocate, elsewhere in the New Testament, it's translated comforter, helper. It's the same word that's used to the Holy Spirit. Christ is our advocate, our helper in heaven. But he said, if I depart, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. And he referred to the Holy Spirit in the gospel according to John as our helper, our comforter. It's the exact same word that's translated advocate here. The Holy Spirit is our defense lawyer here. Jesus Christ is our defense lawyer in heaven. You have the Holy Spirit, just like Christ had said. He would send the Holy Spirit. Paul writes, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Just like the Old Testament temple, the presence of God was in the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. So too, the presence of God in the person of the Holy Spirit is in you if you've believed and trusted in Jesus Christ. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is not just on you, not just with you, but in you. And you have that from God. We didn't do anything to earn it. We were granted the Holy Spirit as a gift by God. And as a result, we are not our own. Our life is not our own. We don't get to decide how we are going to live our life. We're not our own. We belong to God. We were ransomed and purchased. The Holy Spirit is the sign and seal that we belong to God, that we have been ransomed that Christ paid the price to purchase us. God owns us. Christ owns us. We don't get to decide how we live our life. They do. And they instruct us in Scripture how we should do that. We have been bought with a price, the price of his precious blood. As a result of that, how ought we to live? We are to glorify God. That's how we ought to live. Whatever we do, we do it to glorify God. You have hope in Christ. Do you know what the number one reason is that people commit suicide? That people take their own life? Those who fail and really tried, they didn't just do it to get attention, but who really tried and they are rescued. Here's the number one reason why they attempted to take their own life, they had no hope. That's what they say. I had no hope. Nothing was ever going to change in my life. It was never going to get better. It was only going to stay the same or get worse. They had no hope. But you as a believer in Christ, you have hope. Now, biblical hope is different than what the world calls hope. What the world calls hope is a wish. Oh, I hope I hit Powerball. Okay, no, they wish that they hit Powerball. Biblical hope is not just wishful thinking. 
biblical hope is certain because it's grounded, it's rooted, it's founded on the promises of God. It's a hope both sure or certain. It's guaranteed by God who's as good as his word. And it's steadfast. It never changes. It'll never evaporate. It will never go away. The hope that God gives you through Christ, who is the anchor of our soul, this hope is certain and will never change. And again, he brings in that same Old Testament concept of the high priest entering the Holy of Holies, one that enters within the veil, separating the holy place from the Holy of Holies, the one that was torn in two when Christ died on the cross. Where Jesus has entered, he entered the Holy of Holies with his own blood to accomplish eternal redemption. Jesus entered as a forerunner for us, having become high priest forever. You know, there's a connection here. This word forerunner, it's an interesting word. Certainly it has the idea that Christ went before. But it was a very special term that they used during the first century. It's related to the anchor. Now, anyone who read this in the first century would have made that connection. We have a hope as an anchor where Jesus entered as the forerunner. So what was the forerunner? We all know what an anchor is. Uh, a ship or a boat drops anchor so that it doesn't drift in the current or in the winds. It's anchored right there. It's basically not going to move. Well, in the ancient world, uh, harbors were not always that great. And sometimes if a large cargo ship approached a harbor and it was low tide, they could not enter that harbor because the water was too shallow. And they would have to wait for high tide or something close to it in order to enter. But if a storm was expected to come, and in these deeper waters... They could drop their anchor, but it would never catch on anything on the bottom. So the storm could just toss that ship about. What they would do is they would lower a smaller boat, lower the anchor into it. That small boat would go into the harbor to the shallower waters and drop the anchor there, where the anchor would catch. And even when the storms came, that ship would not be blown about, would not be blown away. Jesus Christ, our forerunner, he's like that little ship who goes before us. He is also the anchor that keeps our souls and ensures that you and I who have trusted in Christ will never be lost. We are eternally secure because of Jesus Christ. You can have confidence in Christ. You have it right now. John also writes, love is perfected not in us, but with us. The context here, the verses leading up to verse 17, 
are about God's love for us manifested in Jesus Christ. Go all the way back to around verse 7 or so of John 4. We, we love him because he first loved us. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. John is going to write about the love of God that's shown in Jesus Christ toward us. That's the love that's perfected with us. God's love would not be complete if it did not have an object to bestow that love upon. And he bestowed that love upon you and I in giving us his son to pay the penalty for our sins. Love is perfected with us. And there's a practical application to that so that we might have confidence, we might have boldness in the day of judgment. See, we don't have to fear judgment. John's going to go on and say perfect love casts out fear. But it's not our love. It's God's love that casts out fear. If you are in Jesus Christ today, if you have trusted in Christ, you are already perfected in God's love. It's his love for you. You have completed that. His love completes you. And you have no fear of coming judgment. You will never be judged for your sins if you are in Christ. You have the mind of Christ. That's what this whole series, the one we did in the spring and the one we started in the fall, thinking biblically with the mind of Christ. We now have, as believers in Christ, the mind of Christ, and we want to think biblically. The natural man, Paul writes, the unsaved man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he receive them because they're spiritually appraised or discerned. It's not just that he won't receive the things of the Spirit of God, but he's unable to. Only the believer in Christ is able to receive spiritual truth and recognize the value of it for their own life. The unsaved, uh, they don't believe God's truth has any value for them. But the one who is spiritual judges or appraises or discerns all things, yet he himself is rightly discerned or judged or appraised by no one. You can translate that word judge in this, these verses by discern or appraise, evaluate all things. The spiritual person evaluates all of God's truth and sees the value for themselves. For who has known the mind of the Lord, but we have the mind of Christ. Because you and I have the mind of Christ as believers in Christ, we see value in his truth, including this one. You also have a new commandment. John writes in his second letter, there's just one chapter, so it's just verse 5. John says, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning that we love one another. And he's referring to the commandment Christ gave in the upper room on the night that he was betrayed. 
he gave them this commandment, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, that you also love one another. See, the world, they love themselves. Me first. I don't care about anyone else. But that's not the new commandment. And you and I don't think the way the world thinks. We want to think with the mind of Christ, which we have. And so we see value in this, that we love one another. Christ said, as or just as I have loved you. And how did he love us? He laid down his life for us. Christ wants us to lay down our life for one another. To regard one another as more important than ourselves. To look out for one another. Show love for one another. You know, an ancient uh, Roman writer, after beholding Christians being gathered together and put to death in the Colosseum for their faith in Christ. They were about to be martyred in different ways and put to death. What they would do is they would gather the women and children between them. All the men would try to shield their bodies. They would take the death stroke for others. They would die first trying to protect the others. And this ancient writer wrote about the Christians because he had never seen that before. Behold how they love one another. They were willing to die for one another. Brothers and sisters, we should have that same love for each other that the early Christians had to lay down their life for one another. What is waiting for you in the future that you currently have? It's there, you have it, but you'll only see it and realize its fullness in the future. You have an eternal house. Now, this is not an eternal home that Christ was talking about like in John 14. When Paul writes about this, he says, for we know that our earthly house, this tent, this shell, this body, he's talking about our body here, that when this is destroyed, this body is not the real me. The real me is my soul and spirit. It can't be seen. The real you is not just your body. This is just a shell, a tent, an earthly house so that we can interact with physical creation. It will be destroyed. It's falling apart. I'll tell you it's falling apart. That's my testimony. Closing in on 70, it's falling apart. When this earthly house, this tent is destroyed, know this, brothers and sisters, you have a building from God, a house, a spiritual body. That's what he's talking about here. Not the earthly house, you have an eternal house, an eternal spiritual body, as Paul calls it in, in 1 Corinthians 15. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. You're going to live forever in an eternal body that's not subject to all the limitations of the physical body, that doesn't have the aches and pains and whatnot 
that you might be experiencing today. You have an eternal house. You also have currently that you'll see in the future an inheritance. In Christ, we have, we have obtained, not will obtain. This inheritance is yours now. It's like what's sometimes done uh, in extremely wealthy uh, families. There might be a, uh, an inheritance that is left to a child, but it says in the will they will not receive the inheritance until they're 25 years old, old enough to perhaps make wiser decisions with it. They already have it, but they haven't realized it yet. They don't see it. It's not theirs personally yet, but it exists. In him we have obtained an inheritance. And this is not an afterthought with God. Notice what Paul says, being predestined according to God's purpose. God's purpose all along was from eternity past, before he created anything, God's purpose for your life and mine as believers in Christ is that we would have an eternal inheritance. It's not just our present salvation, not just the forgiveness of our sins. He wants to give us even more. It's not just what he took away, it's what he gave us, eternal life and the inheritance that is yet to come. This was always his plan, his purpose. And the all-powerful God, the sovereign God, works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is what he's desired to do. No man can ever change that because he works this. Not you and I, not anyone else. He works all these things according to the counsel of his will. Peter talks about that inheritance as well. And he begins with, Blessed be God. See, all these we haves should produce an attitude of gratitude, should produce gratefulness and appreciation so that we bless God with our lips and with our life. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again to an eternal hope and to an inheritance, an inheritance that is incorruptible. It's never going to rot. It's never going to decay. It's incorruptible. It doesn't fade away. It's not going to disappear on us. It can't be squandered away. Why? Because it's reserved in heaven. That inheritance is in heaven. It's not on this earth. Your best life is not now. Unless you're going to end up in hell then yes, this is your best life. But if you're a believer in Christ, this isn't your best life. Your inheritance is incorruptible, reserved in heaven for you. Oh, Paul, but that inheritance, okay, it's reserved. But what about me? I'm down here. I'm not up there. Look what Peter writes. You are kept by the power of God. You're not kept by your own power. It's God who keeps you. You're not going to be lost. Christ is the anchor of your soul. 
You are kept by the power of God. Who can overcome God? Who has more power than God? All the demons and Satan put together? No. He cast them all out. They couldn't resist him then. They can't resist him now. You are kept by the power of God, not for judgment, but for salvation that is ready to be revealed in God's own time. So in conclusion, are you thinking biblically about what you have in Christ? Have you ever thought about all the blessings? This is just some of them that you have in Christ. Today, will you begin to daily meditate on what you have in Christ so that it produces deep in your heart and soul an attitude of gratitude, deep daily appreciation for God and Christ? And will you begin to daily thank God for all you have in Christ? That's going to be the measure. That's going to be the test. That's going to be the yardstick by which you can measure how much you truly appreciate all that God in Christ has done for you by how much you thank him each day. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you so much for all that you have done for us. Oh, dear God, we will never fully understand and fully appreciate all that you have done. And that's why you've given us the days of eternity to thank you and to praise you as we ought. Oh, Lord, we know we will never run out of things to thank you for. Your praise will always be on our lips, and we look forward to that day when that will be true of each and every one of us. We thank you for the great hope that we have even now. We thank you for the gift of eternal life. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for paying the ransom price that we could never pay in ransoming us, redeeming us. Oh, dear God, we thank you for the inheritance. But we thank you most of all, dear God, for your beloved son and all that he's done for us. Oh, Lord, take the inheritance, but give us yourself. And we are truly satisfied. We thank you so much. In your name, amen.